what I'm about to say, I need you to swear you're not going to say to my son um, who's turning eight in December, but he wants for Christmas, he wants a pocket knife. Eight years old, wants a pocket knife. Found, you know, a pocket knife he wanted on my iPad, so that's what I want, you know? And, um, of course, a dad, child, eight, pocket knife. I looked at it, and I said, you know, as any good dad would do, you know, there's something better than that, than a pocket knife. You know, a pocket knife had two blades in it, and I, and I, I showed him what a Leatherman was, <laughs> you know? And he's like, I'm like, look at all the things that this Leatherman can do, all the gadgets and gizmos and doodads, and his eyes lit up like a Christmas tree, you know? I mean, compared to the kind of one-dimensional, simple pocket knife with just two blades to this, this thing that's like, a, it's like a, an entire tool chest, you know, all in one little compact little thing that fits right in a little leather pouch right here. I mean, that's every boy's dream. That makes them every bit as powerful as Batman. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, Dad, the car broke down. It's okay. I got my Leatherman. Mom, your oven went out. It's okay. I have my Leatherman. Broke a nail. It's okay. I have a nail file. My Leatherman, you know. Get stuck in a cave. It's okay. My Leatherman has a flashlight, you know. He wants one of those so badly, so don't say a word to him, because I'm not sure whether I'm going to get it for him or not. And don't judge me. <laughs> don't judge me if I do. Um, now, I, my, my, my point is, is not to, to have given a commercial for a Leatherman or to give you Christmas ideas for your boys. Um, rather, I want to draw an analogy between a simple pocket knife that has two blades and has limited function to the Leatherman, which is kind of so filled with all kinds of applications. That oftentimes, Christians, when they think about this word we call the gospel, we often think of it a little bit like a pocket knife with just two blades. That is, it has one primary function. And that is, the gospel's purpose or function is to deliver us out of hell and into heaven. Or, to put it differently, the purpose of the gospel is to save us from our sin. And to that, I think everybody in here who believes in Jesus would want to say yes, amen. Like, the gospel is the means by which God has removed us from the curse that we deserved and delivered us into a place of immeasurable blessing all because Jesus died and rose again. We'd want to say yes and amen to that. But the gospel functions and has the resources to deal with, and this is not an overstatement, every single issue of life. That is, it's not one-dimensional or, or single function. Like, it actually is much more along the lines of a Leatherman, only you have to just expand it by a, a million. That it actually has the power and the capacity to connect and bring transformation to all of the little nitty-gritty things we deal with in life, from how we treat our spouse to dealing with our anger, dealing with um, anxiety about finances or um, lust, or you could put anything in there. And, and I believe that the gospel has the resources to bring liberation in those places. And that's part of the challenge for um, students of the gospel or believers in the gospel or meditators upon the gospel or people like me who's kind of a preacher of the gospel 
is to see how is it that this gospel deals with this particular issue? How does it bring liberation and change to this particular issue? And that's, that's, of course, the great challenge. It's easy to talk about the gospel generally. Jesus saved you from your sin. Amen, yes. But how specifically does that good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ come to bear upon the specifics? That's, that's the real challenge. And I want to attempt to do that this morning in the area of um, physical blessing. Um, that is material blessings that God gives to us. How is it that we as Christians are supposed to, by the gospel, um, relate to the things God gives us? Um, and not all of these are, might be think of, thought of as material, but uh, like our wives and our children and our homes and our bank accounts. And how is it we, as God's people, are supposed to live in relation to those things? And how does the gospel revolutionize our relationship to that? Now, I'm going this direction for two reasons. One, we're going, we're going in the direction of renewal and, and, and the gospel, and so I want to continue in that vein. And also, of course, this is uh, Thanksgiving week, and we are hopefully, many of you are going to be gathering around a table with a turkey or ham or some other kind of great food, and you're going to have friends and family, children, and, and, and you're probably going to stop and give thanks. And no doubt, if you're a believer, you'll stop and give thanks for salvation and for the freedom and forgiveness of sins and but you'll probably also, which is fitting, and I heard some of that this morning in the testimonies of, of, uh, of giving thanks for the roof over your head and your children and the fact you have food to eat and you have a job and, and you're able to make ends meet. Um, you're here. You're alive. You have at least health enough to be here. Um, so I thought it would be appropriate for us to just think about that for a moment. And these, um, these two passages in Paul um, deal with two wrong ways that people often deal with material blessings in life. Um, and, um, but he deals with it from a common center, and that is the gospel. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying, if just listen, because oftentimes we get one-sided um, in when we talk about material blessings in the church. And, and, and I believe Paul is, 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 is very even-handed in the way that he brings um, these two, this issue uh, to light in a way that should bring clarity to some, maybe conviction to others, or liberation to others. Um, so so here, here are there's the two extremes that, that he says are the wrong ways to relate to the physical blessings God has given you. And you think about, as I'm talking, you think about the things that God has given to you. Um, keep that in your mind. Wrong way number one, um, what some have called asceticism, um, and it has existed through the church and in the world that we live in, and continues to be a part or a way in which people oftentimes relate to their wealth or what God has physically blessed them with. He writes this, chapter 4, verses 1. I'm going to just read through verse 3. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, and here's the content of the teaching or the moral application of the teaching, this doctrine of demons. It says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. That is, it's a teaching that requires this kind of abstinence from the physical blessings that God has given to us. Now, what exactly the teaching was, we don't know. Some believe it was a combination of Greek philosophy and Jewish law kind of mingled together so that you had this road of spirituality that you had to take, and in order to get there, you had to abstain from certain things. 
It's kind of like the pursuit of holiness through abstinence, through self-deprivation, of denying oneself um, the pleasure of marriage, the pleasure of family, or the pleasure of particular kinds of foods. And here Paul basically says the teaching that forbids these kinds of things is to be equated with the demonic. Um, that's that's how, not how we're supposed to walk as um, people who forbid things as a means of, of growing or transforming spiritually or thinking perhaps somehow it gains you um, some brownie points with the Lord. And yet, uh, ironically enough, um, this particular kind of teaching has historically and continues to be a part of how um, we often mistakenly view um, Christianity and spiritual growth and, and value. That it's easy to think, by way of example, that a, a family who is living here in Fairfield who sells everything, nothing left, garage sale, just liquidate everything, so they can support them, themselves um, to do orphan ministry in Sri Lanka, um, that they are more spiritual or somehow have more standing before the Lord than someone who stays here in Fairfield living in their four-bedroom, three-bath house um, with two cars in the garage. We oftentimes think of the one as more spiritual than the other because there's a self-deprivation aspect to it. These people have denied themselves to go to the mission field, which is a good thing. These people have stayed, and they live in their house with their two cars in their garage. And it's easy with this kind of thinking to... And I, like I said, I think it's kind of implicit to think that the one is more spiritual than the other. And, and what that does is it kind of creates this, well, in order for me to truly be spiritual, then I need to abstain. I need to give it all up, or I, I, I need to not drive two cars, I need to drive one car. Or maybe I just need to sell them both and drive a bike and go green or something like that. Um, and what that often does is that kind of belief that the we grow more holy through abstinence, it does one of two things. It creates a sense of self-righteousness on the part of those who, 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 who abstain. Or at least that's the potential. And then it creates a sense of, of guilt and inferiority on the person who, using the illustration, stayed in Fairfield in his four-bedroom home. Because we are thinking of spirituality in terms of how much we abstain or deprive or, or give away. And uh, Paul's saying that's, that's the wrong way to relate to the blessings God's given to you. And he goes on to say, now this is then how you should relate to it. After the um, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, that, now he, this is his theology, this is the truth that God created, God designed to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Get that? Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. Nothing that God has created is to be rejected if it is received with thanks, thanksgiving. He's saying that, listen, we have a, a good God who created a creation that is good. When he created it, he said it's very good. A good creation is a reflection of a good designer. And he says, therefore, creation, the things that God has given to us, is they are good. And he says, you as followers of Christ are to receive them with thanksgiving. That's how God designed them to be. And not just to receive them, but the idea is to enjoy them. And God created the good things around us for us to receive with thanksgiving and enjoy them. That's how the Christian is supposed to relate to those things. Enjoy them. 
And you read Genesis 3, 2, excuse me. Genesis 3 is when everything comes apart. But Genesis 2, you know, God furnishes a home for Adam and Eve, you know. He just didn't make it black and white or monochrome. He didn't put one single bland tree in the middle and say, this is your only option. No, he just, he lavished. He just abundantly and beautifully and like it went above and beyond what, what they could have ever asked for on a whole variety of tastes and colors and wonders. And he did that so Adam and Eve would see those things, taste those things, see each other and go, man, you're good. You are good because this is good and it's a reflection of you. I, you know, I mean, the Christian should be one who believes this, who bites into a pear. You know, I happen to like pears. My dad had a pear tree on our property. Bites into a right pear and just stops and goes, oh, that's good. That's good. Or a mango or an apple or whatever your fruit of choice is. Or a piece of turkey with your family. And say, you know, it's kind of like Bill Murray and what about Bob? He just goes, mmm, this is so good. It's good to look at your wife and to know, God, you're good. Or to look at the roof over your head, however big or small it might be, and know that, God, I don't deserve this, man. You are good, and I'm enjoying this roof over my head right now. As he wants you to enjoy those things with thanksgiving. Um, The cook is honored when the people who eat his food enjoy it and say thank you. To not do that, or to think somehow it's bad, is actually to dishonor the goodness of a God who created so many wonderful things for us to enjoy and say, you're good, you're awesome. But I want you to notice what makes it possible for us to do this. That is, not to walk down this road where I have to abstain from everything in order to be spiritual. Um, There's this key phrase in here when he talks about that God created you know, um, these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. When Paul uses the word truth, he almost always means the truth of the gospel. And when it's coupled with the word belief, that pretty much sums it up. When he's thinking of those who know or believe and know the truth, he says those who, who, who believe and know the gospel, that is those who believe and know Jesus, what he's done and who he is. And... You know, for the Christian who knows that, you know, I don't have to walk through this abstaining life in order to be accepted or to please you or to to have any special brownie points with you because everything that I need has already been provided for me in Christ. So I don't have to walk down this path because I'm already complete in the Lord. And that frees me then, it frees you then, to enjoy with thanksgiving what God's given to you. Don't walk down that path because you're complete in Christ. You know the truth. You know the good news, that God has completely and fully accepted you, not on the basis of holiness by abstinence, but by the sake that you've trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, I can hear two objections. One would be, well, wait a second. Does that mean we shouldn't fast? The answer is, of course not. There's times where you set aside your electronics or food or Starbucks or whatever it is that, you know, you find yourself doing that you want to do without for a while. But you should do it, of course, seeking Christ and and know this. It adds nothing to your ledger. 
that has not already been provided for you in Christ. You don't earn anything by doing it. That would be one qualification. Second objection, you say, well, it seems like Paul and Jesus are conflicting here because I distinctly remember a couple of times in the gospel where Jesus says, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I mean, he says denial right there, and here Paul's saying this is wrong to live that kind of abstinence approach to holiness. And that's where you, when Jesus made the statement, um, you must deny yourself, you have to understand that within the scope of the whole New Testament. He didn't mean that as an unqualified absolute. What I mean by that is when he said deny yourself, the self that he was talking about there is that old sin um, Sin-governed, self-centered, self-aggrandizing, self-exalting, sinful person that we once were, which Paul says has been crucified with Jesus. That's the part we deny. The I'm first kind of old man. That is denied because it's died with Christ, as we saw in Galatians. But we're also new creatures. And God's given us a new heart that loves him and wants to be grateful for the good things that he has given to us. And with that new heart and as new creatures, we can enjoy what he's done. We can sit around a table and, and enjoy it in ways that people who don't believe in Christ never can. Because our relationship with Jesus and God does not depend upon our deprival of those good blessings God has given to us. Paul's like, listen, enjoy it. Thanksgiving. That's kind of the one side, and, and maybe you've thought that way. In order to be perfected, I need to go more without. And Paul's saying, listen, that's, 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 a, that's a bad road of bad religion. It's, it's a religious self-denial of physical blessings. But then he switches in chapter 6 to address a different issue, another side of, 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 of the the problem. And that way is, is this. That is, if the one wrong way of relating to the things God has given to you, house, car, wife, kids, job, truck, um, is to try and gain more with God by denying and, you know, abstaining from it, well, the opposite side is to make too much of it. That's materialism, the idolatrous reliance upon physical blessings. That is, we come to rely upon it um, in ways that Paul says here. He, notice verse 17. He says, now as for the rich, these are the rich in the church. The people would say, yeah, they're more the wealthy ones. This is his instruction to young Timothy. This is the young pastor at the church of Ephesus. He's telling him, this is how you deal and instruct the people who are wealthy in the congregation. He says, as for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, he's not talking here about the love of money or the, the love of acquiring more things. That He deals with that like eight verses earlier, where he says, in no uncertain terms, and I hope you all pause to hear this as Americans, that the love of money is the root of all evil and people who are driven by a desire to acquire more of it will end up in moral and spiritual ruin. But here he's not talking about the love of money. He's talking about the possession of it. That there will be people in the world and in churches across America and around the world where 
God has blessed people with their gifts and their particular careers where some will have more and others will have less. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of how God works. Some are going to be wealthy. So now he's instructing Timothy. What about those ones? Not the who love money, but people who have it. And notice what he does and does not say. He doesn't tell Timothy, listen, man, you've got to get into those wealthy people's business and you need to tell them to give it all away. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that they're supposed to make themselves poor or feel bad about the fact that they have more than others. Doesn't say that at all. No, rather he warns them not to make too much of it in particular ways. Don't let it make them haughty, proud and arrogant, or to set their hope, or another way of saying it is their security in it. Those are things that take root in a person's life when we rely upon wealth. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you have a lot, because you, maybe you've been a successful businessman or, or maybe you're just you know, up there in the ranks in the, the corporation, to think that, well, look what I've done. And notice key, what I've done. A self-made man, pretty savvy with money and entrepreneurial and and to think much of yourself, that is a, can create a sense of, of arrogance, of, of haughtiness. That is, money gives power. A person with a lot of wealth walks into a room, and he knows people around the room are whispering, there he is. People know your name. People want you to come to their fundraisers because you're known for that. That it gives status. It gives reputation. That is the power that money has to become a foundation for one's sense of worth, identity, and security. That's what it does. It becomes a, 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 a god. And Paul says, you know, that's stupid for one main reason. Actually, more than one reason. But one is that all of the physical blessings, the good blessings that God gives us, in the end, they are temporal and uncertain. That if one bases their character and their security, um, their sense of self-worth, um, or their sense of confidence in what they have amassed, well, then they've put their lives, based their lives on something that's shifting. I mean, we all know that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and a real estate world can come crumbling down or a stock market can crash. And, and even if we're one of those lucky few who doesn't step on that landmine of economic woe, Guaranteed, every cent will be taken from your pocket when you die. It's an uncertain foundation. And those who choose to rely upon it for their sense of self and their sense of security um, will find themselves in the end, they might not see it this way, but enslaved. Um, because if you take away the stuff, they don't know who they are. There's no sense of identity. Their sense of self-worth is depleted and they're depressed. Living in the fear of losing it or feeling highly insecure when somebody else comes into the room who has twice as much as you and then struggling with the pride when you're top dog. In the end, it leaves a person in slavery. That's why Paul is saying, listen, to the people who have much, be very, very careful um, don't let it become the foundation of your life, yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be arrogant or massively depressed 
when things don't go well and don't set your hope on it because it's uncertain. And then he switches. So if, um, if we're not to kind of treat our stuff um, by way of asceticism of I'm going to deny it so that I can make progress with God and, and then Paul saying, but don't worship it, don't rely upon it. How, how, how then is the Christian then supposed to counteract this second part, this materialistic tendency, which is all over in our culture? Rather, he switches. He says, but, you know, we're supposed to set our hope on, on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That is a God who is good. That is a God who is gracious. That is a God who... Um, is, is, is the God of gospel, the God of good news, the God who is lavish. No, we're not supposed to depend upon the things God has blessed us with, but we're to hope and find our security and rest on God who richly blesses us with everything. Notice, to enjoy. To enjoy it, and there's a whole list of, of verbs here. To enjoy it, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to share. That is, that is how, on the flip side, and most of us by global standards are wealthy in this room, is um, to relate to our wealth at whatever degree it is in a way that we do enjoy it, but we don't hold it so close that we don't share it and show generosity um, with others. And the way that that happens, again, the ability to actually do that, to enjoy it, and to be generous with it comes again from this thing we call the gospel. That where our hearts are truly convinced, where our hearts are saturated with the truths that Jesus really is all-satisfying, all-securing, all-saving, We believe that he is our protector, our vindicator, our provider. The one who looks out for us every second of every day and at the proper time will take us home. Where we're confident that we have already received every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where we're convinced of those truths, we're actually able to hold the things that God has given to us much more loosely because they no longer define our, our sense of worthiness does not, is not built on how much we have or how well people think of us because of how much we have. It's like my identity, my worth, my security is all found in one place. It's Jesus. His death is life and he's coming again for me and his presence in my heart. And when I have him, I, 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 I'm not scrambling for more. And that, I believe, is, was Paul's key to, to, to how to, to live with wealth without worshiping it. Is Christ, the, the same exact person who completes us, um, is, is the same one who delivers us from the, the ascetic life and at the same time liberates us from the idolatrous life when it comes to these things because we have him. I think Paul said it really well in um, his own life. And I should say this because I, I skipped it. But as we do that, as, as we live in Christ and we trust in him 
and we're able to enjoy, but also share, knowing that it doesn't define us anymore. He says, basically, we're investing in the future. That is, we're laying for ourselves a, a treasure, a solid foundation uh, in, the, in, in the new creation, something that will never fall apart. And at that point, it's no longer temporary. It's permanent. It's eternal. So that's a little added incentive in the future. You want to invest your life, not just in enjoying what God has given to you, but also in sharing it. Well, here's a pretty good incentive. It, it, it will last uh, in, the, in the world to come. But Paul says in, in his own life, his own experience, and I'm going to bring this close with this because it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting way of stating um, his own experience with much and with little. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he's saying, you know, I, I've been at times where I, I had to, steak and potatoes, and, and, and I was living well, and I experienced prosperity, and I, I don't think he felt guilty about it. Why? Because he's free in Christ to enjoy it. Um, but he was also a person who knew how to be content when he didn't have much. He was okay when it was time of plenty, and he was content when it was time of leanness. And to me, the only explanation is because he really knew that in Christ he had everything. He really believed that. And when you and I believe that, like that's gospel, um, then it really does free us to enjoy. So we're going to gather this week, you know, and tonight, and you're going to sit across the table from loved ones, and, and I think the Lord would have you enjoy it with thanksgiving and share it generously. Enjoy it with thanksgiving and share it generously. Why? Because... You know, Jesus is our shelter in time of storm. Jesus is the one who protects us when we're attacked. Jesus is the one who provides for us, whether in need or in plenty. That is, he is enough for us. And where we believe that, we are free to enjoy life and free to share life. That, brothers and sisters, is how I believe the gospel comes to bear on something very specific like how is it that we live with all these great blessings around us? Well, we live with Christ at the center and avoiding these two paths. And I hope if you're here this morning and maybe you've walked down or you're walking down one of these wrong paths, you'll realize that, wow, I've made this an idolatry or I've tried to earn more righteousness by, uh, by taking one of these two paths. Um, and to remind you to come back to the center where we truly experience the freedom that we have in Christ from those kinds of things. Let me pray for our, our week. Lord, I thank you for um, all of the manifold, um, innumerable blessings, the physical blessings of life. Um, though they be temporal, they're still blessings, they're still gifts from you, and they're still good. And I pray that you would um, continue to liberate our church family and our hearts from um, from false teaching and, and also from idolatry of all of the cool stuff around us and enable us to live full and free lives um, grounded and rooted in Christ and Christ alone because only in him do we find freedom and experience freedom to both enjoy and share. And um, so I pray you just take this message and may um, it mull over in the hearts and minds of those who are here and may it do your work um, through the power of your spirit, I pray. Amen.